Spiked is free. We have no paywall. You don't have to subscribe to read our articles or listen to our podcasts. We want as many people as possible to have access to our content. And so we are determined to keep Spiked free. And we're only able to do that thanks to the generosity of our readers and our listeners. Your donations mean we can carry on doing what we're doing and provide an essential alternative voice on the big issues of the day. This is particularly important during the COVID crisis, in which Spiked has provided the space for lockdown sceptics, dissenting experts and others to say things that have become unsayable elsewhere. So thank you to everyone who donates to Spiked. If you don't yet donate, but you would like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Even £5 a month, less than the cost of a copy of The Guardian and a cappuccino, can make a huge difference to our work. So, to help keep Spiked free and thriving, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Now, on with the show. The more people make a fuss about it and actually you know, show that they don't like this, it'll eventually filter its way through to our politicians. You know, do we believe that every time uh, an invisible threat of some description, whatever it's told to be, is allegedly out there, do we believe that we should hide behind the sofa for the rest of our lives or do we believe that we should face the threat? You know, where does society lie on this? I think taking away people's freedoms on the basis of unspecified, unmeasured and unsure invisible threats is a mistake. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. We are still recording in semi-lockdown and in this lockdown episode I am delighted to be joined by a man who has been a voice of reason in these recent months, Dr John Lee. John is a former pathologist. He was clinical professor of pathology at Hull York Medical School, and he was later director of cancer services at the Rotherham NHS Foundation Trust. He has also presented TV shows about autopsies and the human anatomy. And since the outbreak of coronavirus, he has written numerous pieces for The Spectator, expressing scepticism about how lethal COVID-19 is and about the government's response to it. He has earned himself a following as someone who calls for calm and reason as we deal with this novel virus. John, I want to start off by asking you about masks. Firstly, because um, at the time of recording, masks are in the news, a big story, but also because I think this issue could be a useful way into a broader discussion about the science of COVID-19, the truth about COVID-19 and the politics of COVID-19. So I wanted to kick off by asking you right now, as we're speaking, it's going to become mandatory to wear masks in shops. There is some discussion about masks being mandatory in all public places, although that seems uh, incredibly unlikely at the moment. I wanted to get your take on the efficacy of masks and what you think might be driving 
the government in particular, but also all the other people who are taking up the cause of masks with some relish? I think the current push for masks is probably based on two things. The the Royal Society has released two new studies claiming to provide uh, new evidence for the fact that masks are efficacious. And I think the government is engaging, uh, well, it's claiming to engage with the science, but I think it's it's also engaging with sort of psychological operations. Uh, I think the government is worried that the economic recovery isn't happening as quickly as they hoped it would do. People aren't going out to the shops as quickly as they hoped they would do. And their interpretation of that is that people are worried about going out to the shops, having been worried by the whole COVID epidemic, and that you know, forcing people to wear masks will uh, improve people's confidence to go out and do the things that they would do. I think that's one interpretation. I think another, another side effect of compelling people to wear masks is that people may decide that it's all too stupid and they're not going to go into the shops until this idiocy is over. And I guess I'd be more in that camp myself. The, the trouble with the whole mask thing is that the science of it, such as it is, is very weak and very poor. And the, you know, the two Royal Society reports that I've looked at and the Lancet report and the previous review that I had given are all based on low-quality descriptive data because it's essentially impossible to do a controlled trial uh, of mask wearing in public places with all the variables that that involves. So the story seems to boil down to the fact that because you may be infected with COVID and not know it, then they'd be asymptomatic. And that's a whole other story, actually, because it seems to me it's a good idea to have asymptomatic infections spreading around because they just reduce the virulence of the virus. But because you might be doing that, and because the virus is allegedly stuck to big droplets, and because the masks, although they don't catch small droplets, catch the big droplets, that if you catch the big droplets, that will stop the virus spreading. Now, I think not only is that totally unproven, it's also facile. It, 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 it's a failure of imagination uh, in terms of what happens to droplets when they hit the mask, for example. When a droplet hits the mask, it'll dry out very quickly within you know, seconds or at most minutes. If there's any substance to the uh, droplet other than water, it'll turn into a dust particle. And as you breathe in and out, unless you sort of super glue the mask to your face, there'll be a constant rain of dust particles coming out from all directions around your mask. They will go into the air, they'll be stirred around by people walking, they'll be breathed in, and the virus will do what it does. And the fact is, although we know a lot about viruses, I think we know very little about how they really spread in public spaces and in the population. I mean, the point is, why do we, you know, when we're catching a cold, why do we catch a cold this month and this week and this day and not last year and not the year before? I mean, the fact is, we don't know. Do you have to breathe in one virus or 10 or 1,000 or 10,000? You know, what's the state of your immune system when you breathe them in? All these variables. And I simply don't think we have a proper handle on that. But the people who are advising the government really do think that they do. They believe their models. They think their models are telling them the truth about this, despite the fact that there's been precious little evidence for that and a lot of evidence for the fact that they're pretty rubbish. So I, I think it's just a clash of belief in a way. The bottom line with this, and I'll come to that, the bottom line with this is that I don't think we should be in the business and our government should be in the business of copying totalitarian states and pushing compulsion on people without having jolly good evidence to do it. The, the, the truth of the matter is if we don't have good evidence, then truthfully we don't know. And if we don't know, we shouldn't compel. By all means advise, but we shouldn't compel. And I think that's the fundamental philosophical divide about this so the, the science is weak and the government is enforcing compulsion without strong scientific evidence and on the basis that it thinks it's going to make things better just psychologically, which is also a very open and moot point.
I think that's an incredibly important point in terms of the question of why something like masks is being pushed forward and why many people seem quite happy to put them on while, as you say, others will think it's ridiculous and, and won't bother going to the shops for a period of time. One of the things that has really struck me is that people have said to me, either people I know or in media discussions about masks, people have said to me a very interesting thing, which is, okay, sure, we don't know if they work, the evidence is unclear, the jury is still out, but shouldn't we wear them anyway? Because even if they reduce our chance of getting COVID, someone said to me uh, very recently in a radio discussion, even if we reduce our chance of getting COVID by 1%, it's worth wearing a mask. And one of the things that worries me about the current climate that we've had over the past few weeks and months is precisely that kind of attitude where safetyism and a desire to remain safe at all times, which apart from anything else is a bit of an illusion, but that desire seems to override everything else in terms of evidence, in terms of the enjoyment of life, in terms of the ability of people to go to work even. To what extent do you think the past few months, obviously this has been a very complex period and it'll be worth us talking about it in depth, but to what extent do you think government policy and public attitudes have been driven more by a culture of fear and a desire for extreme safety rather than by rational evidence? I think this COVID crisis has been brewing for a lot longer than the last few months. It's been brewing for the last two or three decades. Um, and it's encapsulated in something called the precautionary principle. And the precautionary principle is, is otherwise sometimes known as the better safe than sorry principle. And it basically says that uh, if there's even a suggestion of any potential harms to human health or life or the environment, uh, that you should take avoiding measures without having sure scientific knowledge of the mechanisms of the way that the harm may occur and without even a full assessment of the precautionary measures you're taking. It's, it's regarded as better to take precautionary measures than not. And so but the, my point would be that better safe than sorry is only any sort of reasonable guidance to life if you know what you mean by all three terms, if you know what you mean by better and safe and sorry. And I think the lockdown is a just classic case in point. So I, I think the COVID crisis has been brewing for a long, long time, and it's finally hit the jackpot with this one. And I think it's hit the jackpot by a combination of a sensationalist media, of a hugely risk-averse government that doesn't want to be blamed for anything, and of scientists who are happy to go along with that principle. It takes much more courage, I think, to stand up and say, well, we really don't know about this, so we shouldn't do anything, rather than say, oh, yes, 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 let's impose these things on everybody, let's do all this thing. And I think the, the, the lockdown is a clear case in point. The government was panicked into taking these measures in the face of a new virus. And yes, it's, it's a, quite a nasty virus in the same way that flu is quite a nasty virus. But it is clear to me from the evidence that we've got that this virus is not outside the envelope of other years when we have a bad viral epidemic of, of respiratory disease is not outside that envelope. It's about eighth in terms of deaths in the last 27 years. So the point is they were panicked because of pictures and because of sensationalist reporting of this in the beginning. They went into lockdown on a purely precautionary principle basis. So we didn't know really what the virus was doing at that stage, whether we were frightened it might be bad. We went into uh, lockdown without any assessment whatsoever, as far as I can see, of the effects of lockdown. Nothing, nothing was assessed on that beforehand. And that violates a key principle of medicine. And a key principle of medicine laid down by Hippocrates in about 400 BC is first do no harm. So basically, you don't leap in and chop somebody open with your surgeon's knife and you don't give the medicines unless you know 
that what you're doing is going to be better for them than you know the, what they're facing. And frankly, if you do do that, there's a term for that in med- medicine, and that's negligence. And so I think the government was negligent, frankly, in putting us into lockdown with no assessment of what it would do. And I think it's pretty clear, the more we look at this, the more we understand the deaths that were actually due to COVID, as opposed to, you know, simply being with it present in the system or allegedly present in the system. That's another thing. We don't know about the sensitivity, the specificity, the accuracy of the testing. Um, that's just assumed to be correct. Well, I don't think we can assume it to be correct as a pathologist. So the government precipitated us into this. The death rate is substantially below, I believe, what it's claimed to be, because a lot of people will have simply been uh, you know, older and infirm people essentially waiting to die. I mean, we've had a below average flu season for several of the last few years. So basically there was a, a bulge of people waiting to be carried away by the next one. Okay, it was a new virus, so it has, has killed some people. But the, the bottom line is the lockdown in terms of the effects it's had on people's mental health, in terms of the effects it's had on shutting down the health service and people haven't been able to get access to treatment for you know, cardiac disease, cancer, you name it. If we believe the health service was normally doing anything useful at all, it's shocking, frankly, that we've simply shut it down for a period of four months. There will be a big reckoning to pay for that. A lot of the deaths during lockdown will be directly to do with, with that. Um, anyway, there was no assessment of that. And of course, there's no assessment of the economic damage, which is colossal. And no country has ever improved its health by making itself poorer. So there will be direct health consequences of simply the economic downturn, which will play out over the next few years. Now, none of this was assessed. So when people say better safe than sorry, I, I'm sorry, guys, it, it's not as simple as that. You have to assess what you mean by better, what you mean by safe, and what you mean by sorry. And if you don't have a clear handle on those words, you should be very, very cautious, in my opinion, before you do anything. And I think we basically, as I say, hit the jackpot for the precautionary principle this time, and it's not been to anybody's good. Um, I want to come back to a couple of points you raised there, particularly about the manner in which deaths have been recorded over the recent period and and the way in which COVID has been accorded to some deaths, sometimes in a not particularly honest or clear way. And I want to ask you about the lockdown too. But before we get onto those in a bit more detail, I want to just get your overview on COVID-19 more broadly. So one of the very striking things about recent months is that in a normal time, and you've just described very well that this is not particularly a normal time, and in some ways we're we're witnessing the jackpot of the precautionary principle, which is not a very healthy or helpful approach to life. But in a normal time, people who assured the public that a particular disease or a particular threat was not necessarily as bad as they thought it was, people who did that would be looked upon in a positive light. They would be seen as being reassuring, helpful, putting people's minds at ease and allowing people to get on with their lives within reason, despite the existence of a new threat or a new disease or or a new virus. But uh, you will know this yourself. Over the past few months, the opposite has been the case. And people like you and others who have said, you know, listen, let's put this into perspective. Let's look at the broader picture. Let's really try to assess how serious this virus is, whether it's as deadly as we have been told. People like that have tended to be demonized. And I wanted to get your overview on how problematic you think COVID-19 is. So one thing you wrote, which was very striking, which was the most common symptoms are not fever, cough, headache, and respiratory symptoms. They are no symptoms at all. And around 99% of those who catch this virus recover. That's something it's really 
worth people knowing, isn't it? And could you just describe in a bit of detail how you see coronavirus in the scheme of things in terms of the threat to human health? The striking thing about this disease, it seems to me, is that is the evolution of perception of the disease, at least not in the public sphere, because the government, having taken a particular perception of this disease in the first place, so they bought the scary pictures that were coming out of various places around the world, from China and from Italy and from New York and places, they bought a very alarmist and totally inaccurate WHO prediction of 3.4% mortality, and they suddenly enacted these gross distortions of personal freedom and the way that the world works. So, in fact, as far as I can see, the government and their advisors haven't really moved on that. They want to maintain. They painted themselves into a corner very quickly, um, and they don't know how to unpaint themselves apart from by acting out the scenario that they wrote down in the first place, which is why months after we could have, in my opinion, abolished all these things and got back to normal, we're still going through what appears to be more months of, I don't know, public virtue signaling, ritualistic behaviour. I mean, humans have a propensity to this. In ancient Egypt, priests did rites for the sun to come up every morning for 3,000 years. I mean, the fact that it comes up every morning on its own didn't seem to occur to them, but that's what they believed. And I think when you convince yourself that the sky is falling, it's quite difficult to unconvince yourself that the sky is falling if you've invented various ways that you think are effective in keeping it up there. I think that's where we are with this, really. The, the interesting thing about the narrative, though, from the point of view of those of us who kept an open mind, is the way that the virus has moved. When it was first discovered, the WHO, whose performance, I have to say this, I think has been lamentable, and I frankly, I think it's not fit for purpose, and I think we need a better way of dealing with world health threats than, than is currently embodied in that organisation, in my opinion. The WHO originally said that there were no asymptomatic cases of this disease. As of now, it's reckoned that there are probably about 90% of people have this disease asymptomatically. So in other words, the usual disease that you get with this, when, when you detect the virus in somebody's system or the fact they've had the virus by antibodies, and of course antibody testing is only one way that the human immune system responds to this, the normal response to a virus is not actually with antibodies, it's with, it's with cytotoxic T cells, which are a different type of immunocyte that don't make antibodies. And you can find those responses in about 40 to 60% of people who haven't been exposed to this virus. So I think it gives the lie really to this whole track and t- test approach that the government's doing. But the point is the, the vast majority of people now actually who have this disease don't have any symptoms at all. So it's a very mild you know, disease. A few of them have a nasty disease, like with a cold. You know, some of us get a mild cold, some of us get a nasty cold, some of us get a really nasty cold and take to our bed for a few days. And a few unfortunate people get a, you know, even worse than that, maybe have to be admitted to hospital. But the point is that the actual truth of the matter has gone from nobody having asymptomatic disease to nine out of 10 people having asymptomatic disease. I think part of that may be because this is a new virus and because the actual nature of the virus itself has changed a bit over the time. These viruses do evolve quite quickly. But the fact is most people who have this disease are are not seriously affected by it. Unfortunately, some are, but the vast majority who are are very old, often quite infirm with multiple other diseases. And, you know, one of the things that's come out of this to me is it's been just about impossible to have a grown-up debate about human lifespan and about death in public. You know, you have ministers claiming that every death is a tragedy. I think anybody who's in medicine and, frankly, anybody who's a grown-up in the general public will know that that's not true. All deaths are sad. It's sad for the person. It's sad for the family. But the fact is, you know, very old people who are maybe very ill in other ways or who maybe are demented or otherwise infirm, the fact is often when death comes to those people, it's a natural release. It's a release for them and it's a release for their family. And I think to pretend that every death is a tragedy is simply not true. 
And the fact that government ministers would keep on saying that day in, day out, about only COVID cases, for example, not the nine out of ten people who died of other things on that same day. But the fact is, it's simply not true and it's not grown up. And I think to have a, a grown up response to any threat in the world, we, we have to you know, be honest and open about it and see it the way it is, not sort of play politics with it and go, go looking for virtue signaling and you know, trying to have a competition you who know, to be the most caring possible person that nobody can possibly come to harm for anything. I mean, you could pretty much the same, the same for COVID as you do for motor cars. You know, if you get in your motor car in the morning, some of us who get in our motor car in the morning will be dead by nightfall. It's pretty random. You don't know who's going to be and some awful thing will befall you. It doesn't stop us using them, does it? I think we're in the same sort of ballpark with COVID. except this is a new threat. Well, it's been framed in a particular way. Also, the public debate, apart from a few channels like you know, like yours here and, you know, the spectators published some of my articles and a few people have been writing, but frankly, the debate has been shut down and our public broadcasters, I think, I feel have done a woeful job of presenting balance uh, in this and have not allowed contrary views or even, you know, perfectly reasonable other interpretations of the data to reach the public because it's all become about public control. And I think that's a very worrying precedent and a, and a rather worrying response to our government. So, you know, with, with masks now, they've discovered that they can control people by telling them what to do. So they're keeping their eyes going and still controlling us by telling us what to do. And, you know, I'd like to know where the end point of this is going to be. I'd like to I'd like to feel, actually, that the, I think the British people are very sensible. I think most people are sensible. They can think about information when it's presented sensibly to them. But I'm worried that too many people are very compliant. We believe in the rule of law in this country, which is a good thing. Uh, but we're compliant, maybe a little bit complacent that we think, well, the government knows what it's doing. You know, I'm surprised that we haven't got a little bit more worry and interest in the protection of civil liberties and freedoms, and we simply believe they're all going to come back as normal. I'd personally like to see a bit more you know, activism along those lines, as well as, you know, other issues that we've seen activised in recent weeks. I think personal freedom is a, a very important one, and it's not a given, and it's not something we can take for granted, as this episode is showing us. I think the dearth of critical debate, particularly in the mainstream media, has been really shocking, as you say. One institution in particular that has been bad, and you've mentioned it there, has been the government. And I, I wanted to get your opinion on how the government, in your words, painted itself into this corner. And it seems to me that it's it's bound up with the way in which the government currently relates to science or what is often referred to as the science, as if it were a kind of gospel truth. Do you think part of the problem is the way in which we currently treat science as almost a kind of religious revelation rather than something that's actually driven by a continual process of questioning, doubt, changing your mind when new things come to light, which has happened numerous times as COVID-19 has mutated or as we have come to understand more about it. Do you think the government's over-reliance on a particular kind of science is part of the problem for why it fell for these scare stories and instituted this kind of crazy lockdown? I do, basically. I mean, I think there are two problems. I think most of the people in our Parliament are not very scientifically literate. They're not highly scientifically trained. They, they have a sort of ground level appreciation of science like most normal people do. And I think that's good. I mean, I, I'm in favour of the, the normal system that works with our Parliament questioning everything and doing things on the basis of, of the public interest rather than the interest of one particular group. But for some reason, it's partly to do with this precautionary principle. It's partly because of the way that the seriousness of the threat was presented. 
for some reason, for this one, they've lined up behind what turns out, as you say, I think to be a particular subset of scientists. And these are subset of scientists who are public health people and infectious disease people and infectious disease modelers. And they have a particular view of the world and they are convinced that they're correct about that. And I'm pretty convinced they're pretty much wrong about it. But the point is the government has bought that particular story and other stories and other interpretations have been suppressed and they have not been allowed to be debated. The, the trouble with it is, is if, you, if you're doing modelling and things, modelling can be a useful thing. It can be useful to sort of show you what, if you can't model things properly, what you're missing. But the trouble with it is if you over-specify a model, so if you pick, you know, 15 variables of you know to do with that the amount of virus has to be there how it gets into you how we get it whether a face mask affects it this that and the next thing and you can model retrospectively you can model almost anything there's pretty much an infinite number of ways in you could in which you can retrospectively model a curve but the only the only proper test of a model is whether you can predict what's going to happen and these models that seem to be have been consistently wrong about that but they're convinced that they get it right all the time and the thing is the curves of the of this virus seem to me to be in all countries of the world, pretty much the curves of the virus you'd expect. There's no clear evidence that the lockdown or social distancing, it seems to me, has done anything to those curves. Because if they had, surely you'd have seen big step changes when they were introduced and also big step changes when they were taken away and big step changes, for example, when people went on a rampage of protests, which had nothing to do with social distancing or anything. But where was the evidence that they caused any change in the disease at all? I've, there's no evidence of a spike in I mean, it's just... There's no evidence, frankly, that, that it did anything. When you look at some of these modelling things, the trouble with it is, I think, I think what's happening is that the, the modellers have their views. They write papers which are not peer-reviewed at the moment. They write executive summaries. The executive summaries are read by the SAGE committee. I, I really doubt that they go through all the papers in detail because they, how do they have time to do that and how do they have time to criticise them? They come to a view. They give the government a digest of executive summary of executive summaries and the government acts on that. Well, that isn't critical science. As you say, science thrives on criticism and debate. And, you know, when things are obvious in science, everybody can see it. When things are straightforward, we can also say, yep, there's the data, that's what it means, no problem. On the other hand, when our evidence is not clear-cut, and when there are lots of different ways of interpreting the data, and when the data you've got are poor quality, um, and they don't necessarily address the question in hand, that means there's room for lots and lots of different interpretations, and lots and lots of argument about what they really mean. And what we've had in this epidemic is one particular subgroup of scientists' view of what they mean has simply been bought into by the government, and that's what all these things are acted on, whereas a lot of other people's views on it have simply been brushed aside. That isn't science. My own view is that this narrative that we've got was drawn up at the beginning. It's incorrect that this virus, while it's, you know, while it, it, obviously it, it's killed people, and for those people and their families and everybody, that's very sad and it's very nasty, but these are risks that we run in life. Life is not a risk-free thing that we do, that we cannot cure all diseases. Viral diseases are ones that we can give supportive treatment to, but we can't cure the virus. Our body does that for us, or doesn't if you're unlucky. But the fact is, you know, random respiratory viral infections that kill people have been around since the dawn of time. As a pathologist, I've seen many such cases over the years, not very many in younger people, but I have seen them. And they're not, you know, when you add them up all up over the country, they're not that uncommon. So the point is, what this is, crisis has been really, I think, is more of a crisis of awareness because we're obsessionally focusing on this virus to the exclusion of pretty much everything else. Every single notification or mention of this virus is being, is being drawn up. I mean, the difference with this virus that I mentioned right at the beginning of the epidemic is that because of the way this was reported from China, 
right at the beginning, before the beginning of lockdown, this virus has made a notifiable disease in this country, which means that suddenly it's given a high status as a very worrying thing. And every, you know, every single case of this virus or possible case of this virus is being notified to the government. Well, that's never been done before for any other respiratory disease. If we did that with flu or you know, the common cold or anything, we could see similar curves. We could find similar stories of people dying of them. Maybe not as many as this year with this virus, but at the beginning of a new virus, you expect to have a few more. So the point is we've dealt with this virus in a different way. It's been reported every day on the news. It's not surprising people are frightened of it. But if you... Anybody can do this. If you go to the Office of National Statistics website and you look at all-cause mortality, so that's just the, the all-cause mortality from COVID or from any other thing in this in this period, you can find those numbers for the last 27 years. And you can also find numbers on that website for population. The population has increased by 20% roughly over the last 27 years. So you have to correct for population as you go. But if you do that, this year is not first, second, or third in terms of all-cause mortality. It's eighth. So it's within the boundary of what we've been looking at. If you look at the deaths of the last six years, three or four of the last six years have been substantially below average mortality, which means that there was, as I say, an overhang of old and infirm people who were waiting to be carried away by the next epidemic. That's not being uncaring or callous saying that. It's just a fact of life. And the fact is this epidemic came along and it took them away. But it could have been flu or it could have been you know, a different respiratory infection. It happened to be this one. It's within the envelope of what we normally live with. What's not within the envelope of what we normally live with is the response to it this time. And the response, as I say, I think that would have caused more damage to the virus itself and more damage in lots of other ways, I say, to do with freedom and quality of life and the way we, you know, the way we think about our relation to the state. And I think there's really serious issues that have hardly been talked about at all but need to be talked about as more and more people realise the evidence of their own eyes that this virus is... Certainly now, whatever it may have been in the very first week or two or three, certainly now, it's not what it's being painted as being. In my opinion, there is virtually no risk of a second spike that's going to be outside the, the envelope of what we normally see in a winter flu season. So I think it was very interesting yesterday, talking about masks, it was very interesting yesterday that very conveniently and in a very timely way, at the same time that the government chose to announce its compulsion for people to wear masks in shops, although not the shop assistants themselves, your compulsion to wear masks in shops. A study popped up modelling what they believe might be the second spike and telling us that there could be between 25 and 250,000 extra deaths with the second spike this winter. Does that sound familiar? It does to me. It's the same modelling that got it wrong in the first place. It's the same modelling that's got previous epidemics wrong. It's shocking to me, frankly, that these models are still being touted about in public as reasonable ways to uh, you know, enact public policy. Just on that issue of science and models, or, or even science versus models, one of the things I was very struck by at the very beginning of all of this, which seems a very, very long time ago now, people would often wave the models in my face, and they would often use the number of 500,000 in particular, the, the kind of Neil Ferguson-derived number of potential deaths if we didn't lock down severely. And I was... Even I, as a layman who does not particularly know a great deal about science, even I was shocked at the way in which models, which I understand to be different to science in some ways, even I was shocked at the way in which models were being used as almost a holy writ, as something unquestionable. This would happen precisely as they predicted unless we took particular precautions. You've written about how models are in essence, they're a form of opinion. They are the opinion of no doubt clever people who look at 
particular graphs or plot particular graphs and then come to their opinion on how things might progress given various different um, scenarios. So could you just briefly explain for, for our listeners what you understand the difference between science and models to be and and why you think it is problematic that the government based its policy on on a model rather than on on scientific proof or evidence or discussion fundamentally you can model retrospectively a curve in any number of ways you like and you can pick the variables that you think are important give them certain values and you'll be able to model the curve that isn't a very impressive type of modeling because i say there are so many different ways of doing it you know, what if i pick 10 variables and you pick a different 10 variables and somebody else picks 20 variables how do we know which of those variables are the right variables the most important variables and how do we know the, the right weighting of those variables when they, when they can all in different ways they can generate retrospectively generate the curve that we've seen so the question there is out of a million models that you could theoretically make which is the right one so the only way that you really know that is if you take a model and you use it to predict what's going to happen in the future and that prediction turns out to be really on the money then you can have some confidence that your model has got the right variables and the right weighting of those variables to generate what actually happened. And then you can have some confidence that uh, you know, your model was right. And then if something deviates from the model in the future, maybe you know that you've missed something. So, for example, you know, the reason why Albert Einstein is revered as one of the world's greatest scientists isn't because he could do very complicated mathematics and make general relativity. It's because when people then looked for some of the things that general relativity predicted, they were found to be there to a huge degree of accuracy. And in fact, when people subsequently realized that general relativity had implications that hadn't been realized at the time, and they looked for those things, they were found to be there to a very, very high degree of accuracy too. So that gives you great confidence that something in general relativity is quite close to the way the world really is. Now, the trouble with biology is it's very difficult to make mathematical models in that way because there are so many variables. Physics is actually quite a nice subject for modeling because physical systems are often quite defined. Biological systems have you know, huge, huge complexity underlying them. We have these, you know, 100,000 genes in our body all doing different things. We're all slightly different. We all act in different ways. Okay, statistically, you may be able to boil that down to things, but the point is it makes biological things quite difficult to model. So the only really convincing way that you can model it, and, and on, a, on a population basis for doing public health things or infectious diseases, is if you can predict the future with it. Well, it seems to me that the Models that they've done for this crisis and in previous infectious diseases ha have not been able to do that. I mean, one of the most striking things that when the Imperial College people modelled the effects of, of lockdown and social distancing, they actually stated one of the assumptions of their model, that they assume that these effects have an immediate impact. And then lo and behold, when you see their curve, the curve goes down like a thing because it has an immediate impact. That means you, you've, you've sort of proven your assumption. Now, that would be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I personally feel that while these models are interesting, they are not a, a good guide to the way the world is actually working with this. There are, there are lots of things in this infection, for example, that, that still aren't known, but that weren't known at the beginning that were known now. So, for example, it was assumed that this virus was always the same. It's pretty clear that this virus has been mutating and evolving even during the, the crisis that we've had. Uh, it was assumed that 80% of the population would catch this virus it now seems much more likely that only 20% is susceptible because in a normal winter, one in six colds are due to types of coronavirus anyway, and there seems to be some cross-reaction with that that doesn't show up in antibody tests. There, there are lots of basic assumptions in the model that turn out not to have been built in at the beginning. So they can add these into their models now, but they just keep on adding things after the event. And as I say, you know, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The way, the way in which we really know this happens is if you can predict it. 
And that seems to me to have been fully wrong. There's another point about these models as well, which I should mention, which is a bit of a technical point. But the point is the infectious disease modelers love the fact that they use this thing called Bayesian statistical modeling, which is conditional probability, which means it iterates itself. And it is a better way of getting your model to fit reality than maybe other ways are. But you can only do probabilistic modeling is if you have a fully defined problem. If the problem is fully defined and you can quote your probabilities to add up to one, fine, because then it's a completely defined problem. Clearly, a COVID epidemic going around the world with all the different variables and the way people behave and do this and do that and different things that are happening, it isn't clearly defined. So actually, fundamentally, there's a big issue with using probabilistic modeling with this at all, in my opinion, which is simply swept under the carpet. And the usual justification for that, and it's the same justification that's used for the data that's available for face masks is, oh, well, it's the best we've got, and therefore we've got to act on this. Well, my argument would be, if it's the best you've got and it's not good enough, you should not act on it, because act on it could be much worse than not acting on it. And I think that's what lockdown and all the consequences of lockdown, to my way of thinking, that's what they're proving, that actually taking big, massive, socially disruptive and economically disruptive actions on the basis of things that aren't clear-cut is a mistake and is hugely dangerous, let alone being politically damaging and damaging to all our freedoms and, like I say, our relation to the state and the way we think the country is run. So I think we've really opened a can of worms with this one, and I really hope that we can actually learn to have a more mature approach to the relation between science and public policy in the future and that we can we can not ever do this again. I think this has been a total disaster. And I mean, one of the things that worries me most about it is I think it brings science into disrepute. I think it's going to in the future bring science to disrepute. And I, I don't like that because as a scientist, I do believe that science has generated great good for the world. It's, it's created a lot of things that are fantastically great to live with these days. But when you do this to people on the basis of science, you know, it's in the same category to my mind as making a nuclear bomb and dropping it on people. It brings it into disrepute. It makes people question whether it's a good idea at all, which is a mistake, but you can see why they would after this. You mentioned earlier the way in which COVID has been treated differently to all other viruses and diseases. In the early days, there were daily death tolls being read out on the television news. The news reporting early on, in my view, was just absolutely disgraceful, just constant death and doom. I know loads and loads of people who stopped watching the news, who just found it horrifying. And between the government and the media, I I think it's incredibly fair to say that they terrorised the public. And I know lots of people who felt real terror about this virus and real terror about this disease and were convinced that their loved ones would get it and that they would, if they got, if you get it, you die. I mean, that, that is how a lot of people felt. And I think it's understandable that people felt like that. One of the things that was utilized to that rather sordid mission of terrorizing the public was the COVID death toll. And I wanted to ask you about COVID death tolls because you've written incredibly well about this in terms of how potentially unusual or at least questionable criticisms can be raised about the way in which COVID deaths have been recorded. So you give the example that flu is very rarely given as a cause of death, even if it may have joined a very ill person's system in the in the final few days of their life. Whereas COVID deaths are in great number recorded as COVID deaths, even if they impact on people who were incredibly ill as a consequence of far more serious conditions. How much of a problem do you think the COVID death toll has been? And how sceptical do you think we should be about what we've been told over the past few months? Yeah, you can't interpret any numbers without a context. And despite the fact I wrote about this 
within days of the lockdown being introduced, the mainstream media have been absolutely resolute in giving no context to any of the numbers during this entire epidemic. First of all, they were reporting deaths. Then when the the death rate has gone down to a very low level now. They started reporting numbers of infections. Then they changed their language instead of reporting the, the numbers of infections. They now talk about the number of infections, for example, have increased by 25. They don't mean that the actual number of infections has been increased by 25, for example, from 1,000 to 1,025. They mean that there have been 25 infections today. So they've resolutely taken a particular line on this, which is highly misleading. And I, I think that's reprehensible. And I think there needs to be a reckoning for that after this is over. Really, I think it's been an absolute total disgrace, uh, the way it's been reported and represented with, with no context whatsoever. In terms of the actual the deaths themselves, I think if you imagine that we're living and we're standing on a pedestal, and the thing is, as we all get older, unfortunately, the pedestal gets narrower. In other words, we've got less functional reserve. And therefore, when something comes along to, to buffet us or hit us, it's easier to knock us off. So the point is, when you're very old, your pedestal is very narrow, and you can be knocked off the pedestal much more easily by lots of things that wouldn't normally knock you off your pedestal. For example, when you were 30 or 40, when you're 80 or 90, they knock you off. And also, of course, when you, when you get very old and when, you, when you're infirm with other diseases, one of the things that, that gets less good at dealing with things as you get older is your immune system. And so when you get to the stage where you're likely to die of something anyway, your immune system is often quite weak. And so anything that comes by is liable to get a hold and knock you off your pedestal and cause you to die, along with all the other things that have basically made your pedestal narrower in the first place. So, you know, as we get older, we get less respiratory functional reserve, we get this cardiac functional reserve, we get weaker, we get stiffer, our immune system goes down. Basically, all our body systems run down. That's just a fact of life, unfortunately. So the fact is, when we become very old, especially when we've got pre-existing conditions, we're more likely to die of anything, basically. Even if you fall over and break your arm or something, that wouldn't normally kill you when you're in your 30s and 40s. But when you're in your 70s and 80s, it can kill you because you break your arm, you maybe you can't look after yourself, you go to the hospital for a couple of days, you catch a respiratory infection and you die of that. It's a very common scenario. It's just a fact of life. You know, we do get more vulnerable to everything as we get older. So the fact is, if somebody's absolutely fit and well and they catch a respiratory infection and they die, well, you would say that that's the cause of their death. But if somebody's in hospital Let's use an extreme case in hospital with cardiac failure, with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and demented lying on a hospital ward and they catch a respiratory infection and die. Well, that's what you would expect to happen to them. But if you then test them because you're worried about this COVID thing and everybody who gets a respiratory infection is tested and lo and behold, it turns out a lot of tests are positive. And of course, because we're not sure about the accuracy of this testing, we're not absolutely sure whether, for example, if they're using the PCAR test for COVID, preliminary chain reaction. And so this is a test used to magnify tiny fragments of RNA and DNA to see if they're there. If they use those tests without having the sensitivity properly calibrated, for the sake of argument, if one person in an old people's home has COVID, those viral fragments will be around everywhere. And you might actually detect it in lots of other people, even though they didn't really necessarily have an active infection. So I don't know what the truth of that is, but the fact is none of us know what the truth of that is because it was all done on the hoof. You can't just develop new tests in a month or two. These are complicated things. And to get them to be exactly right and reliable and fit for purpose takes time and development. So the idea that we could just work as you do this in a couple of months now, I mean, some companies will have made a lot of money selling tests, but frankly, how good those tests are, how reliable, how retrospectively good we will think they would have been, I don't know is the answer. 
So a lot of people, because we were testing for this, and even if we assume that all the tests were accurate and they really did have COVID in, the, the, the COVID virus in their system, uh, the fact is that many of those people maybe were about to die of something else, of their cancer or of their you know, heart failure or, or of their chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or whatever it was. And very terribly, they, they also picked up COVID. Now, normally that would not be recorded on, on the cause of death. Uh, or if it was recorded on the cause of death, it would be another contributing factor, not the main factor. But because of the sort of hysteria that went with this pandemic, all of those deaths were recorded and written down as with COVID. Many with COVID deaths were written down without a positive test, and some of them were written down without even having been seen by a doctor. Some of the old people's home, the care home deaths were written down on the basis, on the opinion of a care home manager. And of course, given the hysteria that was around, I don't blame people for being worried that they would be told off for missing one of these deaths, so you record everything that might conceivably be to do with these deaths. So I think it's likely that the actual number of COVID deaths have been substantially overestimated. I think it's pretty clear that maybe a third of the excess deaths that we've been seeing in this time due to excess mortality are lockdown-related, not COVID-related. And I think a proportion of the COVID deaths will be not really true. And then a proportion of the remainder of those will be deaths with COVID rather than the COVID actually killed those people. So I think the actual number of deaths due to this illness will be substantially lower than it seems to be, although it's difficult to prove that now one way or the other. And how will we ever really know? My strong feeling is that this has been substantially over-egged. And when we look back on it, I, I think the way probably I'd like to phrase it is that we'll be within the envelope of what we normally live with without doing this. In my opinion, this has been humanity's biggest ever, bar none, biggest ever own goal in the sense that we've caused damage to ourselves, which was avoidable and unnecessary. And I think that's a great pity. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I wanted to ask you specifically about dying with COVID versus dying from COVID. So you've explained very well that these are different things, uh, but they got mashed together. One of the things that struck me was the clampdown you tended to see upon anyone who tried to in insist that there is a difference between those two things. And that's people like you and others too, who raised the point that it is different Dying with COVID is different to dying from COVID and maintaining a moral scientific distinction between those two things is quite important. There was a reluctance to face up to that in terms of it's particularly in the media, but also in the, in the political sphere too. To what extent do you think those two things were collapsed together as part of a, of the broader project of fear? Or do you think it was, an unwitting thing that was, as you say, driven by the fact that doctors in particular were terrified of being accused of failing to record a COVID death. Where would you put the emphasis in relation to how that mashing together of two different kinds of deaths came about? What we're mainly seeing with a lot of this stuff is simply the law of unintended consequences. You can't just wave your arms out and say, you know, my mommy told me that was a good idea and therefore that's the way we should live our lives. Because as grown-ups, we understand that you can't simply say that. You have to understand what you mean by those terms. I think they were mashed together. And I think that the government, having painted themselves into this corner by buying into this narrative of this awful disease, taking draconian measures without 
assessment of what they would do, and then substantially a long time, and even now substantially without scrutiny. So really this is the view of a really small handful of people you know, who are not scientifically trained sort of trying to trying to find a way through this thing and basically buying the views of a very small group of scientists with one particular worldview. This is the result you get. The, the reason why those two things got mashed together was because early on in the epidemic, the government were terrified of the idea of being accused of a cover-up. I think that's what they wanted to avoid. So they said, right, the guidelines are anything that might be due to COVID, you say it is, because then nobody can accuse us that we were trying to minimise this or you know, having bought into the narrative. Nobody can accuse us of trying to minimise this or try to sweep it under the carpet. And of course, immediately guidelines like that come out, then you go the other way and every possible conceivable thing that might conceivably to do with this was recorded as being due to it. And then we've gone completely the other way. It, it's murky the water, so we'll really never know the truth of this, I think, probably now. So I think that seemed to me to be where that came from. They were just horrified at the idea of being accused of a cover-up. So that say so went the other way. And I think, unfortunately, also, I have to say that because of the way that this was originally painted as a, as a horrific new plague, and I think another point that could be made about this is that the reason why it took such root so quickly and had these huge effects was because it was sort of primed to believe that this was going to come. People had in their mind the idea of Spanish flu from you know, the First World War, the end of the First World War. There'd been SARS and MERS around recently, and there'd been Ebola virus. And obviously, I mean, I was actually quite worried about Ebola virus at the time because it's a very nasty, or it was a very nasty virus. And we were lucky with Ebola virus because Ebola virus is the sort of virus that could be very straightforwardly isolated. So because you can isolate it, you can keep all the cases separate and then you can basically be eliminated. So although the world's governments really took no action for Ebola virus in case it did spread around the world, we were lucky that they could be isolated and it could be stamped on, it could be eradicated. So we were lucky with Ebola virus. But with this virus, which actually isn't anywhere near as serious you know, by orders of magnitude as Ebola virus was, but it isn't an isolatable virus. This is a virus that spreads on the wind. So pretty much whatever we try and do with this, it will keep popping up and it will spread around on the wind. And whether we wear visors or masks or socially distance or lockdown, it will have little effect, in my opinion, on what this virus is actually going to do. It's going to do what it's going to do. Maybe, maybe all these ridiculous measures we're taking will slow it down by a year or two, but that's all they will do. It will do what it will do anyway. So the point is, it maybe isn't totally theoretically impossible for us to isolate a respiratory virus. But the reason why we've never done it in the past is because the costs of trying to do that are so enormous that they outweigh the benefits from actually getting rid of the virus in the first place. It's better just to face up to it and let it spread. So that's where we are with, with this one, that we've we've taken an approach with this one that was primed for, with, the, with the previous infections, but sort of isn't appropriate to this, to this infection. It would be better to let all the asymptomatic people give their infections to everybody else and to advise people, advise, not compel, but to advise people to do their own risk assessments. And if they think they're at risk for it, you know, do the appropriate thing. Maybe, maybe stay inside, maybe do. But the working age population of this country, who are not otherwise ill, the normal, healthy working age population of this country have very little to fear from this virus. So it seems to be totally insane to isolate and drop down virtually the entire working age population of this country to try and protect a smaller group of people who are infirm, who could take their own actions to do it, and some of whom won't be protectable anyway. The, the story simply doesn't seem to add up to me. In relation to letting it spread, I'm sure you're aware that that's, that's one of the speech crimes of our era. Any suggestion that coronavirus should be allowed to spread, if you cast your mind back to the early discussions about herd immunity 
And various ideas like that were treated as abominations by much of the media. Whereas I read a handful of experts who know their stuff who were saying, well, how else do you expect a community to protect itself from a novel virus or a mutation of an old virus? To what extent do you think that, I mean, you've written about this, but I'd like for you to explain to people how detrimental you think the lockdown was, not simply in relation to civil liberty and the economy, which is incredibly important, of course, but also to the potential of our society to get to grips with this virus precisely by allowing it to move around. Whereas what the lockdown potentially does is simply lock it away in a box for a period of time without ever resolving it or allowing people to become immune to it in various different ways. So would you actually go so far as to say that the herd immunity approach that was posited very early on would have been a preferable option? Do you think that's that's the fundamentally the only way we can deal with something like coronavirus? You know, in the face of a new a new virus of initially at least what seemed to be, you know, severe uh, lethality and virulence, you know, I can understand why governments did what they did. What I'm finding difficult to understand is why they're still doing it now, months after not necessary. And it's like a super tanker. They just can't turn it around. They can't admit mistakes. They can't admit, you know, even a change of viewpoint. And the scientists, the so-called scientists, in my opinion, are guilty of, well, they don't want to face up to the fact that they called this wrong. And you know, they know that they're going to be worried if they ever admit that they made a complete hash of this. So they're never going to do that. They're always going to maintain the story that they maintained at the beginning. Eventually, people will you know, see it for what it was. But at the moment, and the foreseeable, they're just going to keep on saying that. I think we could believe, maybe, that social distancing and, and the lockdown, we could believe for a while that they might have an effect. I don't think Actually, there's much evidence for that. In fact, there's very little evidence for that, which is why now I don't think we should be doing it. But the bottom line is, you know, there are plenty of examples around the world. Again, the, the examples that are reported on the mainstream media tend to be the examples that support the narrative. There are lots of other examples. So unless we're all going to turn into North Korea, we simply can't keep it in a box. Once Pandora's box is open, the little furies are out there and they're going to do what they do. So we can, by all means, try and protect the vulnerable sections of our community and give them some help to be isolated a bit more protected. But I don't think we should compel them. I mean, if, if I'm 80 and the things that make life worth living to me, let me see my family and my kids and my grandkids, you know, I'll make the decision about whether I want to go out. The, you know, we're not supposed to be here to protect the health service. It's supposed to be here to protect us. If it isn't big enough to do that, we'll make it better. But don't take away all our liberties on the basis of you know a system that we've got that really isn't fit for purpose. Now, in terms of the virus, I think that the essentially it is going to do what it's going to do. If you look at the curves from countries with radically different approaches to this, they are what they are. And some countries that you know, congratulated themselves on having isolated it and now finally they've got epidemics. In five years' time, I think we'll pretty much all end up at the same point. So that means that if that's true, and obviously I can't prove that at the moment, but that's where I think I think we'll, we'll all end up pretty much at the same point. If that's true, then the lockdown is simply a massive own goal and a great harm to people. So I'm retired now, but when I was working, I was a lead cancer clinician for my trust for over 12 years. So my job was to organise cancer care pathways. And, you know, in, in this country, we've done very well over the last decade or two in, in improving cancer care, getting people seen within a couple of weeks from their GP, expediting investigations, getting treatment done within six weeks, you know, making things a lot more streamlined and a lot better than they, they were. Well, with the COVID crisis, that was all dumped. So people 
now have been waiting three months for basic investigations. And, you know, I know people who have waited three months to have a basic investigation like a cystoscopy, look inside the bladder, having had blood in the urine at the beginning of this thing. And even now when they finally have their look inside the bladder three months too late, you've got a solid tumour there. Well, that's a disgraceful, disgraceful level of care. And I can't understand the moral equation that said that at the beginning of the COVID epidemic, we should basically ditch everybody who had conditions now uh, that are serious conditions that we were treating and treating well in the health service. We should simply dump all those on the basis of people who might get a different condition tomorrow. Why morally is it better to treat those people than the people we were treating? By all means, if we haven't got enough capacity, build the Nightingale Hospital to improve our capacity, get things sorted out. But to stop what we're doing on the basis of something that was supposed to be coming, which then actually didn't come, I, I can't understand it. And I think, I think fundamentally, from a, from a healthcare point of view, I, I, would, I would describe that as negligent. And I, I think, again, I, I feel there should be a reckoning for that. I, I feel that that was immoral, unjust, and wrong. And and also, as I say, didn't actually help us deal with the COVID crisis either. Yeah. I think one of the, the chief things we need to have a reckoning with is the switching off of, of healthcare to so many people who had conditions other than COVID-19, which I think was unforgivable and will have devastating consequences. It's still ongoing now. I mean, you're trying to see your GP, you're going to get a hospital investigation. It's still ongoing now. And there can be, in my view, with you know, two deaths from COVID in the country or whatever, it was a very low number of deaths from COVID in the country uh, you know, as of now, there can be no justification for doing this. I mean, what, it comes back to what you were saying about the risk aversion of society. We've got this sort of institutionalised risk aversion, which has actually got to the stage where it's damaging people, it's harming people. In the war, for example, when the Blitz was going on in London, Parliament continued to meet when the House of Parliament were bombed, they went to meet in another building, which I think was used by the Church of England, and then that was bombed and they went somewhere else. They didn't just all run away and hide behind the sofa. And I mean, if you add up the number of MPs that are in Parliament, that's 600 MPs, even with the serious death rate, you'd maybe expect half a dozen of deaths amongst those. Frankly, why weren't they there throughout this thing? Why are they still not there holding the government to account? What's happened to our parliamentary democracy? This is not good enough, in my opinion. It's it's cowardly, it's lacking in integrity, it's unjust to the people who voted for them. There's no justification for what people are doing. And I think people ought to see that. And I think I'd like more people to realise that actually this isn't the way to behave. Uh, you know, I'd like to see some of our parliamentarians, apart from dutifully wearing masks around the place and staying at home because they've been told they're over 75 and they must do, I'd like them to say, actually, I'm an individual person, I have my rights, I'm going to jolly well do it within the law. Uh, I don't think the law prevents them from going to parliament. And I don't think they, they're actually doing people any good by showing them this spurious example. I think they should get on with holding the government to account. And they should, instead of what they've been doing, which is holding the government to account within the narrative that's been given, so instead of actually questioning the narrative, they've been questioning within the narrative, like, oh, why didn't we have more PPE early on? And why did we do this with care homes and all these things, which are all justifiable enough questions. But what I would like to see is some more of our MPs questioning the narrative, please. The thing is, whatever we might live in in the humanities, in a postmodernist world where everybody's opinion is as valid as everybody else's and, you know, we can all make up a story and that's a good enough a story for anybody else. In science, I'm afraid, postmodernism doesn't work. So if you build a postmodernist bridge, it's going to fall down because gravity's there anyway and gravity doesn't really care what you think. Well, it seems <laughs> as a scientist, you know, I believe that there's a truth out there and I believe that, you know, even if we can't necessarily get to the absolute truth, what we can do is sort of circle around the centre of gravity of where the truth is. 
And I think what we're circling around now is not the centre of gravity of where the truth is. It's way away from the narrative that we're doing now. And I, it needs to be questioned. And it needs to be questioned with the people who are in a position to hold the government to account. I think currently neither the wider cabinet nor the conservative backbenchers nor the opposition are doing that at all. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think one of the most terrifying things is uh, the singular narrative that we've had over the past uh, three or four months and the fact that everything has to fall within that. Otherwise, it is immediately treated as suspect and dangerous and, and worthy of being shut down. If I can say, one of the things that really strikes me about this is the similarity with regimes that we like to pillory and, and criticise most of the time. But the thing is, if you think about it, when you're looking at, at news you, and, and information, what you like to see is you like to see critical assessment, critical assessment of whatever the story you're being told. Because by that, through that critical assessment, that's how you understand whether the story seems to be truthful or not truthful. On the other hand, what does propaganda do? Propaganda illustrates a story that we believe that we already know. I think what we've been watching on our television screens for the last four months has been nothing other than propaganda. We've been told what the story was, what the narrative was, and everything that's been broadcast and most of the things that have been written have simply been illustrating that. That's not news as we know it. That's propaganda. And again, it's a bad thing and we should be challenging it more. I just have two more quick questions for you before we end. Just sticking with the issue of immunity and something that you've written very uh, a very interesting piece about, which is the and I have a personal interest in this because I I've donated plasma to the NHS as someone who had the COVID infection and plasma from COVID patients is very useful for the NHS. But you've written about how there's potentially an overemphasis on antibodies and a neglect of the importance of T cells and. The possibility that as a result of various coronaviruses that have existed in recent years, we might have, well, some of us might have a T-cell style immunity to the current coronavirus and to other coronaviruses too. That strikes me as something people should know a bit more about. So can you just explain what you mean by T-cell immunity as opposed to the kind of focus on antibodies, which is what people generally talk about? Well, you know, the immune system is a complicated system because we've lived with viruses since the dawn of time. Viruses probably existed before cells existed. So as soon as cells came about, there would be viruses that could infect those cells. Uh, and in fact, you know, the most common viruses in the world are called bacteriophages, and they're viruses that specifically infect bacteria and kill them. And you know, so the, the viruses have existed since the dawn of time. So all life that's evolved since then, from singular cell organisms to multicellular organisms to our lineages going back you know, billions of years, we've lived with viruses all those times. So our immune system has developed as life has developed to uh, protect us. And as I used to, when I used to lecture on this to medical students, you know, I, I used to say, when you look in the mirror in the morning, you might think you look quite good. But if a bacteria sees you looking in the mirror in the morning, all it sees is a bag of culture medium at 37 yeah, bacteria want to eat us. That's what they do. So the point is our immune system is there to protect us. And the reason we stay hale and healthy is because our immune system, day and night, throughout our entire lives, from before we're born, is basically fighting off threats. And some of those threats are bacterial threats, and some of those threats are, are viral threats. In, in, a, in a really simplified nutshell, we have two arms to our immune system, and they can be summed up by the terms B cells and T cells. B cells are the cells that respond to antigens often on bacterial pathogens, but pretty much any antigen in the, in the environment. And they make antibodies to those. And so the idea of those is that when that antigen 
which is a, just a molecular confirmation of anything, you know, whether it's a receptor on the outside of a bacterium, whether it's a pollen grain, or whether it's a chemical. If they get into our body, those antibodies bind to the um, whatever it is, the antigen, whatever it is, and then because they bind to them, that allows those antigen complexes to be taken up by cells and dealt with. So that's the antibody side. Of it. That's one way of dealing things. But then there's another way of dealing things, which is called T-cells. And these, again, there's another whole arm of the immune system. But, for example, if a cell is infected by a virus, T-cells have ways of recognizing that that cell is now different from a normal cell that's not infected by a virus, and they can bind to that cell and kill it, basically. And then that cell is replaced by division from another normal cell that's there, and so we kill the viral cell before the virus can replicate inside the cell. And so that's a very important part of the immune system. And in fact, T-cell responses are the backbone of the immune system's response to viruses. And then there's a whole bunch of other responses to viruses, which actually we don't know very much about, and we don't really have any tests for. So the, the coronavirus is a, is a RNA virus. They get inside cells. There are all sorts of intracellular mechanisms dealing with this, one of which is RNA silencing, where we have enzymes inside ourselves that recognize these things, chop up the RNA, make them recognizable to other particles within the cell that allow them to be bound and allow the viruses to stop replicating. So they're quite important mechanisms as well. And we, we don't know so much about those, but they're really very important. The fact that we've lived with viruses throughout history is shown by the fact that something like 40% of our entire genome is composed of what is called retrotransposable. And these are things that are viral information incorporated into our own DNA. So almost half of our DNA is the remnants of previous viruses that have been there throughout history. So anyway, B cells and D cells. And the point is antibodies are the B cell response. Because they circulate in the plasma, we can measure those easily with, with particular types of assays that have been developed. T cell assays are much more difficult to measure because you have to isolate the T cells and get them to do their thing in glass before you can work out whether or not they've actually got a response to the virus or not. So those tests are harder to do and much less easy to work up than the, the antibody tests. So there's, you know, people are a little bit guilty of looking where the light is because antibody tests are, are quick, dirty and easy. They've been doing those, but there are going to be no way the whole story of this. It seems very likely that people have got T-cell immunity to, to COVID, cross-catching things to COVID. You know, that, that number of 500,000 deaths that you quoted a while ago was based very simplistically on the fact that none of us had any immunity to it and this virus was going to rip through 80% of the population. And that's simply not true. I mean, it looks like the, the percentage is nearer 20% and that quite a lot of us aren't going to get this or maybe the cross-reacting immunity is such a really get a very mild asymptomatic infection it allows us to top up our immunity in whichever way we do it to this virus. So again, it's just an example of where the assumptions that were made about this uh, particular virus and the way new viruses come through us are simply assumptions and they're, they're being disproven by the facts but the story, the narrative was based on the original assumptions and it hasn't been updated properly. And as I say, the scientists cannot now divorce themselves from this monster that they've unleashed and don't know what to do with. So they're just working it through. And the government, because they take blame, are standing behind the scientists who are simultaneously trying to stand behind the government. So in this rather unedifying circle going on of everybody trying to hide behind everybody else, nobody taking blame. And I think the bottom line about leadership is it seems to me leadership requires people to stand up and take some responsibility. And yeah, that sometimes does mean that you're wrong. I mean, you know, as a doctor, we have to make decisions day in, day out with our patients, and we hope that most of them are right, but sometimes some of them are wrong. This idea that, you know, that doing a job well doesn't mean making wrong decisions. It's simply wrong. Doing a job well means doing it as well as it can be done. It doesn't mean never getting things wrong. But in this circumstance now, I think it takes actual leadership for somebody to stand up and say, 
things have changed, the facts have changed, we've been doing our best, but we could go a different way. But unfortunately, the way it is at the moment is that the government doesn't want to hear that, and it doesn't need to hear that because it's not being held to account in Parliament, and it's not being held to account in public. And part of the reason for that is that the narrative has been so tightly controlled. So actually, it is a pretty unpleasant perspective on what's been happening that, that we're being kept in an unnecessary uh, state of constraint by things that are not true. And, and you know, the more people who realise this, I think the more people who find ways of understanding what's been happening and hear things and start questioning for themselves, hopefully it'll get ahead of steam and we'll be able to challenge it. But it's proven very difficult to reignite rational discussion, as it seems to me. Okay, my final question, which you kind of just touched upon in some of those comments there. Over the past few months, when I've read articles by you, they've, they've helped to keep me sane and even optimistic. And I'm sure they've had a similar impact on lots of other people too. So I just wonder, as as a voice of reason, how how do you think we can get ourselves out of the current funk that we are in politically, scientifically, what do you think is the most important thing we do? Do you think it is the question of leadership that you've just mentioned and the, and the importance of politicians somewhere standing up and and putting a break on the kind of singular narrative we currently have? Do you think it's a, a matter of ordinary people taking a bit more charge in their lives and possibly even challenging the government dictates that we currently live under? What would your preferred route out of this current situation look like? Yeah, it's difficult to know to some extent, isn't it? I mean, you know, if I had a magic pill, I would be on the street corner selling it, uh, I assure you. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, leadership is one thing, honesty, transparency. Uh, the trouble with it is it's, it's society, our society, hasn't got very good mechanisms for dealing with uncertainty. I mean, there is quite a lot known about this. There's a super book written by the ex-governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, and another economist called John Kay, with the title Radical Uncertainty, which is a really good discussion of exactly how we can try and deal with the thing, but it certainly isn't embedded in government, um, and it isn't embedded a million miles from the media, and you know, it's a bit of an unholy combination. I think, unfortunately, the likelihood is that the way we're going to get out of this is by muddling through. People will see the evidence of their own eyes that nothing much is happening, things will fray a bit, the government will get a bit bored with doing it. Maybe some country in the world that hasn't taken this approach will be able to demonstrate the fact that it's had the infection now, it's gone away and nothing much has happened. And then other countries will get fed up by having constraints on their on their things. I'm worried that actually governments who've developed a taste for totalitarianism will like to carry on doing it because it seems to be remarkable that in this country with its, its history of, you know, Magna Carta, habeas corpus freedoms, that these freedoms have simply been taken away without even a challenge. I mean, I, I cannot really understand how that works legally, but it seems to have happened. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult to know. I, I think the evidence is there in front of our eyes for people to see that this is not the threat it was built up to be, that it's within the envelope we normally live with, that in fact doing nothing would be fine. The fact is a lot of the things we like doing, going to restaurants, going to the cinema, going out for coffee, going to the shops, cannot be enjoyable and cannot be enjoyed in a humanly normal way without getting rid of this. So we're going to have to get rid of it at some stage, or we will forever be in this ridiculous, you know, situation that's not very nice and is below what the standards that we normally expect. We, we have to get out of this to actually get back to what we regard as you know, decent, normal standard of living. And the only way we really do that is by doing it. And, you know, politics being what it is, the more people who make a fuss about it and actually you know, show that they don't like this, it'll eventually filter its way through to our politicians. 
I think the evidence is there. I think the evidence is clearly there. We, we, we're in a position now, in my opinion, to drop the lockdown completely, to drop the social distancing measures completely, to go back to recommending people who are vulnerable to look after themselves by giving them help if they need it. I think the, the likelihood of there being you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of deaths from this virus in a second spike is, is negligible, frankly. I, I simply don't see the evidence to suggest that that should happen, apart from the models that make their assumptions, which very conveniently stick with the narrative and do that. So I don't agree with those. I don't think they're right. But also, I suppose, to some extent, there's a philosophical dimension here, isn't there? You know, do we believe that every time uh, an invisible threat of some description, whatever it's told to be, is allegedly out there, do we believe that we should hide behind the sofa for the rest of our lives, or do we believe that we should face the threat? You know, where does society lie on this? I think taking away people's freedoms on the basis of unspecified, unmeasured, and unsure invisible threats is a mistake, and I don't think we should do it, and I would have thought that there would be a majority for that. John Lee, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.